0: Thank you, Sam. I love that song. Such a simple song. Uh, very easy melody to pick up on. Very simple words. Uh, but genuinely a profound message. If you listen to those words, uh, Jesus said, if I'm weak, if, if I'm frail, if I'm needy, I should come to him. But then that last verse turns. And Jesus came to us because we can't go to God on our own. Jesus knew that we were so frail, so weak, that even though he says, come to me, we can't go to him on our own. So he came and he rescued us. Praise the Lord. I love that song. Also, one other thing that I forgot to mention in our time of announcements, but we have a brand new visitor with us for the very first time this morning, precious little Owen sitting right there with Jake and Raquel. So I am so glad. Yes, we can clap for that for sure. Absolutely. We have the precious gift of a brand new little baby, a little life, a a soul that we are praying already that Owen would grow up to love and know and exalt Jesus Christ. Um, So uh, praise the Lord. What a blessing it is to have you guys here, a part of our church family. We love you guys. If you have your copy of God's Word, and I trust that you do, go ahead and take it and turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. It was February of 1862. Ulysses S. Grant, who's the general of the Union Army, had just won the battle at Fort Donelson in Tennessee. It was a bloody battle, many casualties. But as was his custom, he surveyed the battlefield, he surveyed his victory, and he did not delight or gloat over enemy losses. Instead, he showed mercy to them. Any of the surviving Confederate army that surrendered to him, he did not uh, Chastised them. He didn't castigate them. He didn't uh, bring them outside. There, there were ceremonies that the Union soldiers would have to make fun of them, to take their weapons away from them. He said no. He gave them food. He let them keep their sidearms. He refused to shame defeated soldiers and vetoed any ceremony in which they would be uh, mistreated. He said to his soldiers, why should we go through with vain forms of ceremony and mortify and injure the spirit of brave men who, after all, are our own countrymen and our very brothers. At dusk, he rode back to his headquarters through fields that were littered with frozen corpses. And he came upon a wounded Union lieutenant sprawled next to a wounded Confederate soldier. And Grant dismounted. He gave them uh, of his flask of brandy gave a swig to each man, impartially looking at each soldier. He immediately called for a stretcher bearer to come and to take the two men away. And the stretcher bearers came and they took the Union soldier away and they said, we will leave the Confederate soldier to die. Grant said, no, take this Confederate too. In fact, take both of them together. The war is over between them. And as they were taken away, he quoted Robert Burns' saying, man's inhumanity to man makes countless thousands mourn. Unfortunately, I think that when it comes to the church, we tend to make countless thousands mourn because of our inhumanity to our fellow brethren. People who claim the name of Jesus Christ, who we know are brothers and sisters in Christ, our mistreatment of them brings us to a place of shaming the gospel, shaming the name of Jesus Christ, as we disagree specifically over doctrinal and theological issues. This morning, as we begin our study back in Revelation, which I am so excited about, I've been looking forward to Revelation 20 since the moment we began our study in Revelation. I love this chapter. But as we dive back in, you need to know right off the bat, this is one of the most contested and hotly debated passages in the entire Bible. People disagree over this chapter and how it affects the whole Bible left and right in evangelicalism. So before we even dive into it, we're going to go slowly through it. And before we even dive into it, I want us, as it were, to take a deep breath together. I want us to spend some time thinking about how to disagree well with others who would not hold the views that we hold. Only then, Will we rightly be able to glory in this chapter, in this text? And So let's read it together, a text that I believe is familiar to many of you, and then we will start asking a bunch of questions of it. It's going to be a great study. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain, in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss, and he shut it and he sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until after the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. And will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. They came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and of the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever. And ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were in, written in the books according to their deeds. A sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Father, these... These verses are so precious. They're so profound. God, we need your help. Even as we sang, you are strong and kind. You are strong to aid us, to assist us. Uh, We don't just need some form of assistance where we can do most of the work, but we need your help to do the last little bit of it. No, we need your help for all of it. We are incapable on our own. We are unable to love you, to know you, to see you, to follow you apart from you doing the gracious work that you do to call us, to draw us, to bring us near, and to keep us close. Father, I pray that as we study how to study this text, that you would be gracious to enable us to respond with humility. God, help us to not let that inner lawyer start to defend us, May your spirit silence that inner lawyer that we would receive the challenge and conviction of this passage as we, as we should, humbly, teachably, willingly. All of us struggle to one degree or another to fight against our own brothers and sisters and to look down on them. And so I pray that we would walk away from here with utter humility because of who you are and because of what you've called us to. Holy Spirit, open our eyes now to behold wonderful things from your law. We pray it in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. This morning, I, I want to look at really three main aspects of this passage, of Revelation chapter 20. Three main aspects. Number one, I want to ask a question that we don't typically ask and camp on as a church. And that's really the question of what are the main views of this text? What are the main views that this text uh, houses, that it holds, that people would have of this text? The reason why we don't normally do this is because I just try to preach what I believe the main point is, and if there are any disagreements, I might bring them up in you know, a one minute, two minute span, but I just wanna preach the text. I don't typically preach other views on the text, I just try to preach the text. When we come to this text, however, since it is one of the most hotly, if not the most hotly debated passages in the whole Bible, I think we would do well to stop and to ask what are the different views that we come to when we look at this text. Secondly, since none of these views agree with each other and only one can be right, we have to ask the question, what do we do when we disagree with others? And I want to take a a good chunk of our time this morning of asking the Bible, how do we disagree well with others on doctrinal and theological issues? And then third and finally, we're going to look at An overview, a broad overview, and for sake of time, we might have to relegate this broad overview of Revelation chapter 20 to next week. So let's see how far we get. Let's start with number one. Question number one What are the main views of Revelation chapter 20? What are the main views of Revelation chapter 20? We're gonna have a little theological discussion here. Again, we're gonna do something that we don't normally do here, but it needs our attention. I want you to be informed. Not only when you hear somebody refer to a theological system, but I also want you to be informed by the way people talk about theology, the way they talk about how they practice their theology. And we'll talk about these things both this week and next week. We have not done this, by the way, if you're wondering, we have not done this with regard to the rapture, because the rapture deals with far fewer verses in the Bible than the kingdom uh, that Christ is going to establish. In fact, The rapture really isn't seen at all in the Old Testament. It's a New Testament development that Jesus talks about in the upper room for the very first time. So if you have this idea of uh, the kingdom as your foundation and understanding, you'll understand where the rapture fits. I had a professor one time uh, when I was going to college tell me that if he was wrong about his understanding about the timing of the rapture, he would be misunderstanding maybe five or six verses in the Bible. If he's wrong about his understanding of the millennial kingdom, which is what we're going to see in Revelation chapter 20, then he has a misunderstanding of really the entirety of the Bible. So the millennial kingdom issue is not just a tiny little issue relegated to one or two or three or four passages. It's really an entirety of the Bible question. And that's why I think we would do well to sit and camp just for a little while on what these main views are when we come to Revelation 20. It's a divided passage. Uh, Because people are asking the question, what is it speaking of and when is it speaking of it? That's the main issue. It describes what is most commonly referred to as the millennial kingdom, the millennium. Now, we have to be very clear, this is not the millennium falcon. That's a different issue. It's a starship in Star Wars. If you don't know that, shame on you. Made the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs. And if you think I'm a nerd, you're absolutely correct. Uh, this is a different issue. This is the millennial kingdom, not the millennium falcon. Millennium is the Latin word for 1,000. So when we're talking about millennial kingdom, we're talking about a kingdom of 1,000 years. We saw it six different times in Revelation 20, a 1,000-year reign, a 1,000-year rule, 1,000 years. And there's three main ways that people understand this text. Three main categories of ways that people view this millennial kingdom. And they're all in relationship to when Jesus returns. So there's premillennialism, there's postmillennialism, and there's amillennialism. Okay? Premillennialism, meaning the pre, the post, the timing of those words, is in reference to when does Jesus come back? Does he come back pre millennial kingdom? So he returns and establishes a millennial kingdom. Does he come back? post-millennial kingdom, as in there's a millennial kingdom, there's a thousand year reign, and then Jesus returns. Or does he not come back at all in this millennial kingdom because it's a different kind of kingdom, it's not a literal thousand years. So let me briefly describe these three camps, just briefly. Let's start with premillennialism, okay? You can write it down if you're taking notes, premillennialism teaches that Jesus comes back pre-millennial, pre-millennial, before the millennial kingdom. Premillennialism, Jesus comes back before The millennial kingdom. Premillennialism sees the kingdom as a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. And Jesus shows up, Revelation 19, to establish this kingdom after the battle of Armageddon. So the typical timing of premillennial thinking is you have the cross, which develops the church age, where God is working in the entire world through the church, calling people to himself. Then the church is raptured, And God begins working with Israel, just like he said he was going to do in Daniel chapter 9. Uh, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people, for your holy city. Now the church is removed, and now God is working with his people, literal ethnic Israel. For seven years, during this period of tribulation and great tribulation, Antichrist ruling and reigning, all those different things, Battle of Armageddon happens at the end of that literal seven-year time period of awful distress and terrible things going on that we've been studying in the book of Revelation. And then at the end of that seven-year period of time, the battle of Armageddon, Jesus returns, fights that battle, destroys all of his enemies, and begins the kingdom, a thousand-year, literal thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. One of the biggest uh, main tenets of premillennialism is that Jesus is going to work with ethnic Israel. They still are God's chosen people, and God still has promises that he has yet to fulfill with his people that's pre-millennialism in a nutshell. Let's talk about post. Post-millennialism says that Jesus returns after the millennial kingdom. So post-millennialism, post-millennial, after this thousand year Jesus returns. The timing, the main timing of a post-millennial thinking is that at the cross, Jesus inaugurates the church age. And what the church is given by God to do is to impact society and the world and the culture take the gospel to the nations, and Christianize the world uh, to a certain degree, to a a majority level. Not every single person is going to be a Christian in post-millennial thinking, but the majority of the world is going to become Christian. And as the majority of the world becomes Christian, there is a period of a thousand years of enjoying a Christianized world and culture where the gospel has effectively gone to the nations, changed the world, and after a thousand years of that being the kingdom— Jesus returns, and the eternal uh, state happens after that. Heaven and hell, the eternal state. So post-millennialism is very focused on passages in the Bible that teach of the gospel going forth, impeded, no uh, chance uh, that Satan can stop the gospel from going forth into the world. The church will get the world to a place where it's decently, fully Christianized. The world's going to get better. So when you hear the idea of a church taking over the culture, taking over society, taking over politics, taking over those different uh, spheres of influence to Christianize the world, that's usually a post-mill type thinking that comes into play. Because in post-millennialism, the church needs to usher in a period of a thousand years that will be a uh, church-run world where God is ruling from heaven over the, the world through the church. And the church rules and reigns in a kingdom-like state for a thousand years, and then Jesus returns. Meaning, if we don't get the world to that place, we can't start the kingdom, and Jesus won't return yet. So that's post-millennial kingdom thinking. Finally, number three, all-millennialism. We have pre-millennial. Jesus returns before a literal thousand-year reign, and he will establish that thousand years where primarily he has worked in the seven-year tribulation and great tribulation period, with his uh, chosen people, with an ethnic Israel. He's brought them to a place of repentance and faith and trust, and he will establish the kingdom. Post-millennialism says that God is kind of finished with Israel, and he's given the, the church to the world. Now it, the church is God's program for all of the rest of time. And so the thousand-year kingdom is not given to Israel. It's given to the church, and the church rules and reigns. And then Jesus returns. All-millennialism. As you can hear in the word, see in the word, the word starts with the A. In Greek, it's what we'd call the alpha privative. It negates whatever word follows it. Uh, We would see this in like atheism, right? No theism, no God. Agnosticism, no knowledge. So amillennialism literally means no millennium. Now that's a misnomer if... if, If you're talking to somebody who believes in the uh, all-millennialism and you think that they don't believe in a millennial kingdom, that's a misnomer because they believe the kingdom is here and now. They just don't believe it's a future reality that will be a thousand years. They believe that the church age equals the millennial kingdom. That is the millennial kingdom. So the timeline for all-millennialism is very, very simple. It's a beautiful timeline. It's a gospel-centered timeline. It's very simple. Cross happens, ushers in the church age, Jesus will return and usher in the eternal age because this is the kingdom. This is the thousand years. It's not a literal thousand years. That's why ah millennialism, it's not literally a thousand years, but this is the millennial kingdom in quotes, figuratively speaking. So there's no rapture. There's no seven-year period of tribulation. We are going through tribulation right now. There's no literal antichrist. It's just cross, church age, Jesus comes back, eternal state. So, those are the three views. Now, obviously, all of them cannot be correct. (laughs) They all disagree. One says Jesus comes back after a period of tribulation and great tribulation to give the Jews a kingdom for a literal thousand years. One says Jesus returns after a literal thousand-year kingdom that's not established by Israel but by the church. And one view says there is no literal thousand-year period. So the question is, what do we do when we disagree on biblical, theological, and doctrinal matters? That's question number two that I want to answer this morning. So number one, we talked about what are the views? Pre-millennialism, post-millennialism, and amillennialism. Number two, question number two, what do we do when we disagree? Because they can't all be right. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to make an argument this morning. I believe it's biblical, and we'll get some help from some reformers. Uh, but I want to make an argument for something that uh, Albert Muller, I think he was the first one to coin this term, and Gavin Ortland talked about it wrote a book on it. It's called theological triage. So triage is typically a medical term. If there's a massive car wreck and not enough first responders show up, to help every single person. They have to go through a a mental triage. We we can't help everybody, so we have to figure out who needs immediate assistance, uh, who can wait, who's okay. We don't have to even worry about them right now. You, You go through a system of triage, from most important to least necessary to interact with right now. I wanna argue for theological triage. Theological triage would say, in the realm of theology and doctrinal matters, there are matters of immediate, urgent, first importance and then there are matters that are not as important. And right off the bat, there are people that just, when they hear that, that bugs them. Because they say, and well-meaning people say, it's all important because it's all God's word. And I say amen and amen, I have nothing wrong with that. It all is important. But it all isn't equally important as far as the necessity of understanding it and believing it and holding it to understand the gospel. And I think I can prove that. I think Paul would agree with that. First Corinthians chapter 15 Verse 3, I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So, of first importance, doctrinally, is the gospel. Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose from the dead. But if Paul says there's something of most importance, first importance, most urgent importance, then that means there's something of second importance in his mind. There's something of third importance in his mind. There's something that's the biggest issue, and there's issues over here. And I think even in Romans chapter 14, he talks about that. In Romans chapter 14, verse 5, he says that there are two individuals in the same church that hold diametrically opposed views, and they're both right. So clearly, Paul thinks the gospel you can't do that with. The gospel is of first importance but there's a, a doctrinal issue over here that practically you're working it out. Two people are diametrically opposed about their thinking on that doctrinal issue, and Paul says, you're both right, and you're both fine. So there is something of first importance. Again, uh, Gavin ortland he has a great book on this called, uh, I believe it's Finding the Right Hills to Die On. I think that's what it's called. Gavin Ortland is the brother of Dane Ortland, who wrote that uh, amazing book that we read through Gentle and Lowly. Gavin Ortland has a helpful four-tier uh, kind of questions in his theological um, triage system. So, number one, we have doctrines that are essential for the gospel. These are essential. If you deny this, you deny the gospel. If you deny this, you cannot be saved. Number two, second level, there are doctrines that are urgent for the health and the practice of the church. This is the way the denominations are worked out. It's a doctrinal practice that denominationally we would hold, but we're not going to look down on somebody else because it's not a gospel issue. Number three, there are doctrines that are important for one branch of theology or another, but not such that they should lead to separation. We shouldn't divide over these doctrines. And number four, there's doctrines that don't even pertain to the gospel witness or ministry collaboration at all. I I think the issue of the millennial kingdom definitely isn't number one, probably isn't number two. It's at least number three and maybe like a three and a half. And again, some people don't like this idea of theological triage. We have a lot of people in evangelicalism that are all or nothing people. It's either all equally important at the exact same level or none of it's really important. Typically, the the joke is made that fundamentalism in evangelicalism is everything's important. There's not an issue that you're not going to fight about. And then typically in liberal progressive theology, nothing's important. There's not an issue that you're going to fight about. You don't really care about anything. Those are caricatures, but I think that they're true. So I think in our circles, we tend to struggle the most with fighting over issues that we shouldn't be fighting about. We need balance. We need balance. Martin Luther, who I don't know if he was the most balanced individual, but he said, quote, Softness and hardness are the two main faults from which all of the mistakes of pastors come. Softness and hardness. If you're overly hard about one issue or overly soft about another issue, that's where problems develop. John Calvin, who I think was a little bit more balanced than Martin Luther, but even Calvin had issues, was okay with a guy being burned at the stake for his view of baptism, He said this, not all the articles of true doctrine are of the same sort. Some are so necessary to know that they should be certain and unquestioned by all men as the proper principles of religion. Examples would be God is one, Christ is God, Christ is the son of God, our salvation is dependent on God's mercy alone, the like. Among the churches, there are other articles of doctrine disputed which do not break the unity of faith. You can dispute the doctrine and disagree but you're not broken in unity of faith. He went on to say much of our separation and division comes from pride rather than holiness. So, what are we to do when we disagree? What are we to do when we disagree? I want to just give you three main ideas, main points of how we are to disagree well when it comes to matters of doctrine. Number 1, our love of theology should never exceed our love for people. Our love of theology should never exceed our love of people. If you're in 1 Corinthians 15, just turn back to chapter 13. If we're going to talk about how to disagree well, if we're going to talk about how to uh, come to a passage and ha- hold a different view than somebody else. We're going to talk a little bit about theological triage as we get to the end. But right off the bat, the foundation must be that our love of theology cannot trump our love of people. It should never exceed our love of people. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you know this passage. Verse 1, Paul says, If I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I've become a, a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, I know all the mysteries and all the knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor and I surrender my body to be burned, but I don't have love, it profits me nothing. A lot of people have this text read at their uh, wedding, which is great. It's about love. But in the context, Paul is talking about unity in a church. He's saying you're divided because you don't have love. And namely, you're divided over issues that you think because I'm theologically correct and accurate, I'm loving you by telling you you're wrong. Paul would say, yeah, but if you don't have love as you do that, it profits you nothing. You could speak in the tongue of men and of angels. I I don't even think that there are tongues of angels. I think he's speaking in a hyperbolic way of saying, if I could speak literally what angels speak, if I could preach the way angels could preach, but I don't have love. Do angels have perfect theology? Absolutely. But if they don't have love as they speak, Paul says, it's not profitable. It doesn't help. You could also look at what Paul says to the believers in Ephesus when he says, "Speak the truth, Yes, but speak the truth in what? Speak the truth in love." There are people, and again, I, I'm going to try to pinpoint what our struggle with, what our struggle is in, in our context, in the circles that we tend to find ourselves, we're not in the progressive liberal camps, we're in the uh, fundamentalist, evangelical camps. And so in those camps, one of the things that I hear a lot is it is most loving to tell someone the truth. So it doesn't matter how I tell somebody as long as I am telling somebody that is loving. I I personally believe, I understand the heart behind that. I think I understand what they're trying to say. I personally believe that's just a cop out for being careful about how you say something. If you say, it doesn't matter how I say it, it just matters what I say. I think you would be fundamentally disagreeing with the Bible. It absolutely matters how you say what you say. Because if how you say what you say, if what you say is perfect, theologically accurate, but how you say it is not loving, Paul would say it doesn't profit anybody. It might be the truth, but if it's not spoken in love, then you're not profiting anyone. So how do we disagree well? How do we talk about these things well? Our love of theology should never exceed our love of people. That's the greatest commandment, right? What is the greatest commandment? Love God, love people, equal. If you do one well, if you do one the way you're supposed to, you will naturally do the other well. You will naturally love others well. So my question to you is, which do you love more, theology or people? Which do you love more? When you come to disagree with somebody theologically, and I'm not talking about heretical issues. I'm talking about people who are brothers and sisters in Christ. They love Jesus. They love the gospel. When you're talking with them and you disagree with them, do you disagree with them in a way where you say, yes, but I love you and you need to know that? We might disagree, yes, but I love you. Charles Spurgeon, he was preaching on John 17. You remember the upper room discourse? Jesus said, people will know, the world will know that you are my disciple because of your what? Because of your love for one another. Not your doctrine, because of your love for one another. And Spurgeon, preaching on that passage, said this, quote, where the spirit of God is, there must be love. And if I have once known and recognized any man to be my brother in Jesus Christ, then the love of Christ constrains me no more to think of him as a stranger or foreigner, but a fellow citizen with the saints. Now, what he's going to do next is he's going to take an example. A guy named George Herbert, who was a Church of England, high church guy, priest in the Church of England. Spurgeon didn't look favorably upon priests in the Church of England. Listen to what he says. I hate high churchism as my soul hates Satan. Mm, That's strong language. But I love George Herbert, although George Herbert is a desperately high churchman. I hate his high churchmanism, but I love George Herbert from my very soul. I have a warm corner in my heart For every man who is like him let me find a man who loves jesus christ as george herbert did and i do not ask myself whether i shall love him or not there's no room for question i cannot help myself unless i would leave off loving jesus then i cannot cease loving those who love him i will defy you if you have any love for jesus to pick and choose among his people My question to you this morning is, do you have a warm corner in your heart for people that disagree with you theologically? And maybe you would say, yeah, I do. My next question is, would others say that you do? Would others say by your action, your voice, your your tone of voice, your words, would others say that you love even those that you disagree with? You're warm towards them. Why is this such an important issue? Well, the unity of the church depends on it. What Jesus said, the witness of the church depends on it. If we are going to be known by our love for one another, then we better be able to be unified and love one another here in the context of the local church so the world will see and know we are his disciples. What is CBC known for? Are we as a church known for our doctrinal precision, our theological acumen? I hope that we are known for rightly dividing the word of truth. I hope we're known for preaching the gospel. But are we also known for a love for one another? Which comes first? Which is seen first? Which is experienced first? That's the love that comes from a right theology. Are we known as a church for our love? And at least from my vantage point, I think that we are. I think we need to excel still more, but I think that we are. We, we go out, and we play. Uh, I can only speak to the things that I'm able to be a part of. We, we go play basketball and we talk to people and people say, who are you guys? Who are, are you like a family? You can't be a family because you all look different. Who are you guys? We, we all go to church. This is my brother. This is my sister. We all go to church. We invite him over to our house. Who invites a random stranger at the park that they meet to your house? People, people say, you don't even know who I am and you're giving me your address? Yeah. We want to love you. I think of many of you who have participated in Abba Hope going to the least of these, going to uh, Skid Row, going to those who have no ability on their own. They're, they're stuck, they're hopeless. And the gospel compels you to go to them. We had the privilege, uh, my family on Christmas Day, going to um, a place in Canoga Park where there is a, a street just filled with homeless people and we just passed out gospel tracts and said Merry Christmas and passed out uh, McDonald's money and, and food and Are we known for our love that we would tangibly, intentionally go out into the world to love them? Are we known for our unity together? What are we known for? What are you known for? Number two, not only does our love of theology, it can never exceed our love for people. Number two, the goal of our theology must be love for people from a pure heart. This is 1 Timothy 2 chapter 1. If you go to First Timothy chapter 1, the goal of our theology must be love from a pure heart. If we want to study theology, and we should, you should have that desire, but if we want to do that, if the ultimate goal is just to learn more, then we have failed. We've aborted the process of transformation before it even comes to fruition. The whole point of this book is to transform the renewing of our mind so that we would live differently and that we would love differently any theological conversation that you have must end with a so what. It must end with so what? How does this change the way that I love Jesus and the way that I love people? If it doesn't, then you're doing a very dangerous work with theology to leave it just in a cerebral academic sense where Paul would say, you're going to be puffed up with your knowledge, but you're not going to love anyone. Kevin DeYoung says it this way, because we should... Study theology to love people more and study theology to love Jesus more. He says this, quote, we should then steer clear of theological wrangling that is speculative if it goes beyond scripture or it's vain, it's more about being right than being helpful or it's endless, there's no real answer being desired or even possible or it's needless, it's just mere semantics. If the goal is life transformation, then we shouldn't be wrangling about theological issues. We should dive deep to the bottom of them and then ask how does this change the way that we live? Sometimes in church ministry and in uh, theological discussions, we become so overly focused on being right that there's only one way to do something or one way to think about something. We become so strict in our view, and it doesn't even have to be theologically speaking. It can just be the way that the worship service is run or the way that the chairs are set up or the way that things are done, the way that discipleship happens. Richard Baxter, an old Puritan pastor, says this, and I think it's very helpful. An overly strict and fault-finding spirit is one of Satan's principal means to discourage love among Christians. Overly strict and fault-finding spirit where you're looking for things to disagree about. You're looking for things to say, I don't agree, and I would do it differently. He goes on to say this. Satan will pretend to any sort of strictness by which he can mortify love. If you can devise any such strictness of opinions or exactness in church orders or strictness in worship, as will but help men's love and set the churches in divisions, Satan will be your helper to do such things and will be the strictest and exactest of all of you. Satan reproved Christ as a Sabbath breaker as a gluttonous person, as a friend, a companion of publicans and sinners, and even as an enemy of Caesar too. Then he says this, he applies it pastorally to every heart, because if you're hearing that, you go, well, I have opinions, I have convictions, am I wrong to have opinions, am I wrong to have convictions? He would say, no. The question is, what do those convictions and opinions do about the way you look at others? Do you look at others and say, you don't do what I would do, you're wrong, or I'm better than you, or I would do it differently, therefore my way's right? He says this, You think when a wrathful, envious heat is kindled in you against men for their fault, that that is certainly a zeal of God's exciting. God made that happen. But mark whether it have not more wrath than love in it, and whether it tend not more to disgrace your brother than to cure him, or to make parties and divisions than to heal and unify. If it be so, St. James, in James chapter 3, verses 15 through 16, if he be not deceived, then you are deceived as to the author of your zeal. It has a worse origin than you would expect. Some people become so zealous about a theological issue or so zealous about a, a church matter, the way church should be operated or run, and they think my zeal is from God. The reality is theological zeal must be subjected to the test of love. And not all zeal is from God, even when the error that we oppose may be heresy. If our aim isn't to heal, but rather to disgrace them, then we've fallen short of what God's called us to do. So uh, another question I would ask is, do you find yourself looking for faults in others? Do you find yourself with an overly strict view, whether it's theologically, doctrinally, or whether it's practically, an orthopraxy? So we have orthodoxy, what we know, what we believe, and then orthopraxy, how we live. Do you have an overly strict sense of fault-finding? Or are you gracious and charitable? How do you define yourself? Do you define yourself by what you're against? I don't believe that. I'm not that. I don't like that. I don't do that. Or do you define yourself by what you are? I'm a slave of Jesus and I love him and he's my savior. Number three, and finally for this morning, not only does our love of theology, it must never exceed our love for people. And not only should the goal of our theology be love from a pure heart. Again, that's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse five. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. Heart, love that brings out, or instruction that brings out love for others and love for God. But finally, number three, when it comes to disagreeing on doctrinal, theological issues, we need to humbly and wisely identify where this issue lands on doctrinal matters as a whole. We need to wisely and humbly identify with that theological triage where does this issue land? Is this a theological issue that Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15 is of utmost importance? Or is this a theological issue that is of secondary importance, tertiary importance? Is this something that's down uh, the bottom rung of the ladder? Not unimportant, but not equally important. I think we need to do a better job of navigating theological disagreements. I, I've told you before I have a, a test in my own mind of what I burn at the stake for this. Would I burn up the stake for my view of the timing of the rapture? No. If you have a gun to my head and you say, change your view of the timing of the rapture, gladly. I will change right away. If you hold a gun to my head and you say, deny Jesus is the son of God, I'd say, send me to him. I'm ready. I I will not deny that. I won't change on that because that's of first importance. Another way we can ask that question is, can you go to heaven believing or rejecting this thing? Can you go to heaven believing that there are more than one way to be saved? There's there's more than one way. Do you believe in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, or do you believe there's more than one way? Can you go to heaven believing there's more than one way? No. Can you go to heaven believing in amillennialism or premillennialism or postmillennialism? Absolutely. Absolutely. So obviously, right away, this isn't a first-importance issue. If it's not a salvific issue. Gavin Ortlund says, unfortunately, it's common for Christians to divide from one another over relatively insignificant matters. In the worst cases, Christians part ways, often uncharitably, over the most petty and ignorant disagreements. In the other direction, many Christians wink at serious theological errors if doctrine's unimportant altogether. A balanced attitude about theology is much rarer. We desperately need to cultivate the skills and wisdom to do theological triage so that even when a doctrinal division becomes necessary, and it will and it does, it does so with minimal collateral damage to the kingdom of God. There is a time to fight for and die for a theological issue. There is. Usually not, though, (laughs) right? Usually we're not at that place where we fight and die for the issue. Celebrating the gospel should be a matter of eagerness and joy. Contending for the gospel and fighting for it should be a matter of necessity. But sadly for some Christians, it's the opposite. Sadly for some Christians, they flip that. Contending for the gospel, fighting and arguing is a matter of joy and celebration. I get to fight today. And celebrating the gospel is a matter of necessity. Yay, I'm saved. Reminds me of General Patton who... Looking at a battlefield, just said, Don't you just love this? And one of his men said, Why? He said, I love to fight. Christians, brothers and sisters, we should not be known for that. I love to fight. That's what the Bible calls that. It calls that pugnacious. And if you're pugnacious, you can't be an elder. You're not qualified to be an elder. There's a time to fight for the gospel, yes. But it's very rare. It's very rare. There's four questions that we should ask. Gavin Ortland gives these four questions. When we're asking, is this a doctrinal issue of utmost importance or where does this fit on theological triage? Question number one, how clear is the Bible on this doctrine? How clear is it? Is this something that's over every single page in the scriptures or is this a very strange, relegated to one text? How clear is the Bible? Question number two, what is the doctrine's importance to the gospel? Is this a salvific issue or is it not? Number three, what's the testimony of the historical church concerning this doctrine? This is really helpful. If the historical church has always been disagreeing about this issue, then it's probably not clear. Go back to C number one, right? Go back there and go, well, this is probably a hard issue to figure out. If the historical church has always understood it this specific way, then it's probably clear and we should know it too. If your view was never even held in the historical church, maybe go back and figure out if you have the right view at all. Question number four. What's the doctrine's effect upon the church today? What's the doctrine's effect upon the church today? How is this changing the way that we live and love together in godliness? So have courage and conviction. Have circumspection and have restraint. Have wisdom and have balance. Don't oversimplify, but don't make something overly important. This is really hard to do in theology. That's why I think it's wise to take a whole sermon to talk about this. Because as we go into Revelation 20, we're going to preach one of those views, and we have to. We can't just have all of them and say, well, they're all equally valid. But I don't want us to look down on people who hold differing views and think less of them or think more of ourselves. Most of us don't like ambiguity. We don't like balance. We like things nailed down. This is the only way it is. But that usually tends to pride and just having to be right. In AD 410, a guy wrote Augustine, about another man's theological views and said, Augustine, what are you supposed to do? And they're wrong views. They were absolutely wrong uh, theological views. They were strange. They were hard to interpret. And so he said, Augustine, how do you interpret these views? And here's what Augustine said. The first way I interpret is humility. The second way is humility. And the third way is humility. And however often you should ask me, I will say the same. Not because there are no other precepts to be explained, but if humility does not precede and accompany and follow every good work that we do. And if it's not set before us to look upon and besides us to lean upon and behind us to fence us in, then pride will wrest it from our hand. Any good deed that we would want to do in the very act of taking pleasure in it. The presence or absence of humility is what matters most. The presence presence or absence of humility is generally far more significant than the theological issue at hand to begin with. If you want a fruitful and peaceful outcome, and when you're talking to somebody who disagrees, if you don't go with humility, you're just going to try and prove that you're right. Conflict becomes inevitable. If you don't go with a teachable heart, if you only have answers and you don't have questions, it's probably not going to end well. Pride just makes us stagnant. Humility makes us nimble, movable, moldable. So let me wrap this up. We've talked about what are the views of Revelation chapter 20. We have premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism. And now the question is how do we interact with people who disagree? What are we supposed to do on this theological issue which isn't of salvific importance and other theological issues? How are we supposed to interact with others who disagree? Number 1, our theology should never exceed our our love for theology should never exceed our love for people. Number 2, theology, the goal of theology should be loving people. So what? Transformational living. And finally number 3, we need to humbly and wisely identify where the issue lands on doctrinal importance. So let me give you four questions. You don't have to write them down because they're a little bit lengthy, but we'll end here. Just maybe, maybe specifically put your pen down and just let these questions kind of wash over your heart. You can pick up the questions, write them down on uh, Tuesday whenever the, the sermon goes up on YouTube again. Or better yet, pick up Gavin Ortland's book. These are from Gavin Ortland's book, Finding the Right Hills to Die. Come over to my house. You can read them. You can write them down. You can borrow my book. But let these wash over your heart as we end this morning. And just honestly ask the Lord to show you and reveal where your heart is. Number one, is there anything in my heart that takes pride in my views or feels superior to Christians who are on the other side of my view? If so, how can you direct your heart back to the gospel as the only source of your identity and the only source of your rightness? Number two, is there anything in me that is disrespectful or dismissive of the importance of this issue? Do I feel superior to or exasperated with Christians who elevate this issue more highly than I do? How can I better understand their concerns and thereby move toward them? Number three, have I taken seriously the urgency of Christ's prayer for the unity of the church in John 17? And am I looking to take whatever steps I can to pursue the realization of this prayer in my own life with others. And finally, number four, what is the right context for me to flourish both in maintaining my own convictions about this issue and in learning and pursuing genuine fellowship and partnership with others who disagree and will challenge me? How we disagree on theological matters matters. We need to understand that the gospel humbles all of us so that our identity is is not in our rightness on theological issues. Our identity is in Christ who, in his grace and love, came to seek us out and to save us in all of our theological error. God in his kindness has done that to us. We dare not choose not to do that with others. Father, thank you for your word Thank you for a sermon to just meditate on how to go about disagreeing and disagreeing well with other brothers and sisters who we love, who are uh, very much so in uh, the camp of Christ and the family of God in the kingdom. Yes, we might disagree, but that's, that's okay if it's secondary, tertiary issues. God, help us to have wisdom. Help us to be balanced. Help us to not be overly strict. God, I pray for any in this room that think that none of this matters, that that no doctrine really does matter. I pray that this morning they would realize they need to be a lot more vigilant about doctrine. And I pray for those of us in this room who maybe make an idol out of doctrine or maybe make an idol out of doctrinal issues. God, I pray this morning that we would be convicted to love others with the love of Christ and not put theology above our love for others, but that truly our theology would be lived out in community. Because as we love you, we love others rightly. God, give us peace and unity as we do this. Enable us to do this with joy. And help us to start at the leadership level of this church that Sergio and I would exemplify to our precious church family what it looks like to be balanced, to not have hobby horse issues, to make the gospel of first importance in our preaching, teaching, and living, and to make everything else uh, one of those lights that that focuses on the beauty of the gospel, on the the diamond and the glory that is seen in the beauty of the gospel. We pray it all in the name of Christ, for his glory, in, in his precious and holy name. Amen.